as we open up your word. Bless our time together as we once again turn to the wonderful truth that you carry us from cross to crown. Amen. Okay, we're on um, page 14 on the, the handout. We didn't quite finish that last part, I guess, on page 14. Just ran out of time. And then we'll jump into page 15 and 16. So if you want that handout, it's on the table there. And if you're listening to the, the audio, you can go to our website, rockofages-payson.com, and there you'll find all the handouts. Just click on the Cross to Crown Bible Study or search for it. Having said our opening prayer, we're jumping into chapter 3, verse 20, I believe. Just a quick recap. The, the parts that we looked at in this part of the chapter, the chapter starts with wives submitting to your husbands, and then it has husbands be considerate and Christian living, but then it kind of shifts gears to, if you do good and suffer, look at Christ. So the second half of the chapter that we looked at last time was, uh, while you're doing good, Look at what happened. Christ uh, faced all these things. And it kind of walks us through the Apostles' Creed. We'll look more on that later. But through Christ's humiliation and his steps of suffering. So now we get to 1 Peter 3, verse 20. And notice how it's still outlining um, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous to bring you to God, then his victory. Well, how do we receive that victory if Christ died and rose again? How is that victory ours? Well, right away Peter goes to the means of grace. And the means that the, the victory of the resurrection becomes ours is we are not only buried with Christ in baptism, but we are raised with Christ in baptism. So verse 20. Who wants to read for us verse 20 to 22? It's kind of, it's, it just seems like it starts in the middle of the sentence. Sure. But anyway, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Thanks. Now, we read through that last time, but just to jump into it again, quick review here. How would you respond to someone who says baptism doesn't save you? Well, I don't think baptism in itself saves you. Baptism yeah, strictly speaking, Peter says baptism saves you, but it saves you by what your faith is in, right? Christ in his resurrection. Yeah. So Peter does say baptism saves you. But as you always see, it always goes on to explain. It brings you forgiveness, which is through faith, which is through Christ, which is through him. Uh, we're connected to Christ. Right, so someone might look at Mark 16, 16 and say, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, whoever does not believe will be condemned, and they only focus on the first part and say, 
You know, look at that, see? Baptism is required. So what about the people that died without baptism? Are they not saved? Well, it says whoever is not believed will be condemned. So baptism is a promise. It's there, uh, but it's connected with faith. Uh, the benefits are received in faith. I think we talked about that last time, right? What other scriptures tie in baptism? We as, did quickly. Okay. How about we go to the next discussion point? What, what do we mean by the means of grace? God could have just rescued Noah. Instead, he had Noah trust his word. God used means that he gave Noah to rescue him. Right? So what, what do we mean by the means of grace? It's from God. The way in which he gives us his grace. Yeah, so how, how do we receive his it's grace? Like the vehicle. How does God work? He, he delivers. Yeah, it's the delivery vehicle. Uh, some people try to illustrate like the delivery pipes. So all these blessings are ours. How does God convey them to us through the means of grace? And if you look at what the Bible teaches, how we receive God's grace, uh, we've seen three things that he, he promises to convey his grace through three different things. Well, people. Okay, well, not just people. because Yeah, well, what, what do people need, though, to, to convert? Word. Yeah, you need the word. So uh, people bring the word. Yeah, People actually, in a sense, are a means too, because God is conveying his gospel through people. So yeah, we'd say the word. So that, that's one means. By the power of the word, God conveys his grace. Sure, baptism. Uh, he says, go make disciples by baptizing and teaching. So the word is there, but also you got baptism. Um, look at the day of Pentecost. What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Um, so even from the very start of the New Testament church, Jesus told us to baptize. He had the apostles baptizing. So that's another means. And what's another means by which God gives us his gifts, conveys his grace? Bread and, bread and wine. Yeah, the Lord's Supper. So in the gift of baptism, we see that we receive the Spirit. We talked about last time, I think, just as the Spirit was present and came upon Christ in his baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. In the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ himself, his true body and blood. Those are our means by which God promises to give us his gifts. The gospel comes to us in the Word, the gospel comes to us in baptism. The gospel comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Um, you can look at the front of most Lutheran churches, and you'll see they, they kind of emphasize that, right? So you look at the three pieces of furniture. Uh, the altar is really a, a table where we put the Lord's Supper. And you can kind of see this stained glass window from this original worship space here, too. So you got the means of grace, uh, baptism, the Word, and the Lord's Supper. Spread with some other symbols. I'm not sure if they're trying to convey the the life of Christ, I think, by that cycle, maybe. And then over here you've got the, the sacrament. You know, that middle one, right? When they first put that up, I thought that was a poached egg. A poached egg. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, the bread together with the wine. Though Peter here is focusing on baptism as one of the means. Notice he says, he saved you. He saved you. And then what does he say? Baptism saves you. And it's not just a, an outward cleansing. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. And it's 
a salvation in baptism. We don't want to take away from what God's word says. Okay, next point there that I have is, what point is Peter making by emphasizing the small number who are saved through God's means of rescue? When he's, when he's talking about the ark, he says, baptism, you know, which corresponds to the ark, he says, in it, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. What do you think he's emphasizing by saying only eight people were saved? chosen? <laughs> Certainly, yeah. Don't expect that salvation is universalism, that we're all headed on the same path, we're all going to be saved. That wasn't the case when... Narrow sure, the, the broad is the way to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life. So when he's speaking to persecuted believers, they shouldn't be surprised if most of the people in the world around them are against them. Most of the people are giving them trouble and trials. And they're on that narrow path. Only eight and all. But but, what happens if you're on that, either called a narrow road or in the ark or washed in the waters of baptism? You're saved. Um, that last point I put there is share God's means of grace. Do you see a connection between all Noah's family saved in the ark despite their unworthiness and Peter urging us to have our entire household baptized? Notice there's a correlation there. It's If Noah knew the ark was going to save, wouldn't he want to bring his whole family in the ark? Everyone that was willing. We even see he's called a preacher of righteousness, no doubt inviting others to participate. But only those who were in, those who trusted God's means, were saved. Same thing for baptism. Wouldn't you want to give your whole household the gift of the gospel? Wouldn't you want to give your whole household the gift of baptism? Wouldn't you want your whole household instructed so they could receive the Lord's Supper? Other thoughts on this section of the chapter as we close out the chapter? I didn't mention it in the study guide, but it gets into his exaltation. That saves you by the, he returns once again to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. So you have... He was raised, ascended to heaven, is seated at God's right hand. All part of the Apostles' Creed, right? Okay, let's go to our next handout. So if you're following along on the audio, we're on page 15. If you want to use the handout. This one, uh, I titled this section... Serve while suffering. And that's just a general title for the start of chapter 4. And we'll start with suffering, but with new desires. Who wants to read uh, the first two verses for us here? Ryan? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Thanks. So we're instructed to arm ourselves, and actually this, this is used, this term at times in a military context, but the meaning is clear. Arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ when we are suffering. So let's describe what's Christ's attitude when he suffered in the body. So Christ suffered in the body. Arm yourself with his attitude. 
What was his attitude while suffering? What's that? He always went to God, the Father. Yeah, so you see him when the great suffering, the greatest of his suffering is going to come upon him. What, what does he do? He wants, one, the fellowship of the church because he has his close friends to pray with him. But two, he's turning to the Father in prayer. So he entrusts himself to the Father as he's facing great suffering in the body. Even at that point, it's a mental, which can be worse than physical suffering, mental suffering where he's in such agony, it's like sweats like drops of blood. So yeah, turn to the Father. What, what other things do we see in Christ as he suffered in the body? His attitude. Yeah, he didn't all of a sudden become this horrible person because he was slighted and abused and mistreated. Still, even to the very end, Father, forgive them. Concerned about his mother, even as he's being crucified. So he didn't say, well, I have a free pass to stop caring about other people because I'm suffering. So we have an attitude of love, forgiveness, care, even amid, amidst suffering. We have an attitude of turning to the Father. What else do we see in, in Christ? I'm, I'm sure you guys can list more. There's no wrong answer. There's so many right answers here. Just want, I challenge you to meditate on what Christ is like as he faced his suffering on this in the body. Yeah. Sure. Very closely connected to his, his loving forgiveness and everything is his humility. Being willing to lower himself. Subjective to authority. There's another one. So kind of connected with humility is putting himself under the authority. There is no authority except that which God has established. When Peter writes to these Christians who are scattered and Suffering is, I have a list of the things they suffer in the, the next study that Peter's listed so far. He's said a lot. They're supposed to, as we just read in chapter 3, submit to the authorities. So Christ did that, right? He let Pilate's soldiers bind him and whip him and do everything to him. He told Pilate, you have authority, it's given to you from the one who's above you. So far we have forgiving, kind, loving, concerned about others, turning to the Father, humble, submitting to authority. And finally, how did he treat his enemies? Yeah. Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, Judas? And very... Humble and patient, even with his his own enemies, not striking back when they struck him or retaliating. Peter says, "Arm yourself with the same attitude when suffering in the body, since Christ suffered in the body." Uh, human desire, as Peter describes it here, he says, um, verse two: "Do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather the will of God." So, human desires. And the will of God are in opposition. 
They have been ever since the fall. Uh, once humans lost the image of God, they're against God. And Peter calls them rightly evil human desires. When we suffer, we are often tempted to turn to human desires as a solution. But the believer has a better solution for suffering, the will of God. Can you list some things which God wills us to do which will necessitate suffering in a sinful world? Here's all his commands. So can you list any of God's commands that would cause us to suffer if we do his will? Okay, so the, the world would say, you know what, it can be so much easier if you just kind of bow down to the, the world's clamoring for what is acceptable and what you're supposed to affirm is good instead of affirming what God says is, is good. Don't put God first. Bring in God when, it, when it's convenient. But if you actually listen to God's word, this world will cause further suffering and yet, rather than putting aside that suffering, we're called to bear a cross. Other thoughts? You know, God doesn't want me to get drunk, but I just can't bear the grief, so I'm just going to get drunk to, to soothe my, my sorrows. Seems like a good worldly solution, but the will of God is, yeah, a little bit of wine, but don't abuse it. But turn to the Lord, cast your cares on him. Uh, a young person decides they're, they're not going to have sexual activity before marriage. Causes them a lot of grief from their, their friends or maybe the people that uh, they're, they're trying to consider as a future partner. But God says, my will's better, honor marriage. The believer is struggling with same-sex attraction. The world says, human desires are normal. Go with it. God says, flee from all things that are sexually immoral. Seek peace. Pursue it. Haven't you read at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and the two become one. Just think of all the, the ways that you're tempted and people in this world, are Christians, are tempted to find an easy path instead of bearing the attitude of Christ towards sin and finding human desires to be the solution rather than godly desires. Okay, other thoughts on verses 1 to 2? We'll come back to a little bit of thought there. The, the he who suffers is done with sin. If we have time, that's in a, the side note there. But let's go to the next point. Join sin's bandwagon or face further pain. So not only are you tempted to evil desires as a solution for suffering, oh, I'm, I'm just suffering so much, I just need to turn to evil instead of God's will. The world will heap abuse on you and cause further pain. Let's read a, verses 3 and 4 now. Reader for that. Okay. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. 
Yeah, they're surprised. Why don't you join us? So they heap slander on you, or some translations, heap abuse on you. Yeah. Yeah. Doing what the the pagans. Uh, the word, I think there is, nations perhaps. Basically, people outside of Israel, outside the 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 covenant promises, outside of God's word, living in this way. So yeah, the the unbeliever basically. So pagans is probably a good translation. Other than we don't really use that word very much. So it's understood that if you're a Gentile, you're not a Jewish believer, usually. Yeah, good, good catch there. The translation will make a difference. But the point Peter's making is, these were unbelievers, right? And I think um, when Peter writes them, you have spent enough time in the past doing what the Gentiles do. A lot of them still are Gentiles. But he's talking the Gentiles as a whole, because these are Jew and Gentile believers. So, and that, that verse 3 here kind of reveals to us Peter's audience, doesn't it? Peter's not writing to um, just a bunch of people in synagogues that were Jews that became Christian. He's writing to Jewish and Gentile converts who used to live in total unbelief, like the world around them. So, first-generation believers. Uh, people will try to make their sinful lifestyles feel normal. Peter lists six areas of sinful living. So those are the, the six types of sins that they were living in that they used to live in, Peter lists. Can you briefly explain what each one means? So what are the six that Peter lists for us here? Some of these aren't vocabulary terms we use that often. Debauchery. So what's meant by debauchery? Anybody have a different translation there? Mine says unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So which, I don't know which one of those. Right. <laughs> it's a pretty broad term. So think, uh, think the Wild West town full, filled with prostitution and drunkenness and gambling. Think the Pirate's Cove where there's just complete disregard for any morality. Lust, we know that one, right? So a sexual sin either in the mind or with material and action or with people. Drunkenness, that's obvious. So abusing God's gifts and even alcohol can be abused quite easily by many people. Probably the biggest one would be idolatry. Okay. Where you have idolatry, you have all the rest. Yeah, idolatry. So in this case, because they're in a Gentile context, they would have been worshiping sex cult gods, fertility gods. That was common in Asia Minor in that time. Debauchery gods, yep. So the god of alcohol, the god of sexuality. Um, orgies, so that's like a, 
can be translated as similar to debauchery, where it's just a whole bunch of people with unrestrained sexual activity. Carousing. So that's a dissipation and drunkenness and just... They're very similar, aren't they? But what do you see? They're all sensual sins. Idolatry actually does point towards a sensual sin too. Jealousy being that too. Yeah, we could add to this list. This is obviously not a categorical list of the types of sins you're going to see the Gentile or pagan, unbelieving world do. But, however, um, you know, if I were to, I'm not subscribed to Netflix, but I know if I were to subscribe to it again, I know what kind of shows I'd see and what, what things they're trying to promote and put forward. And I have some streaming media services, and they, they put right in your face the highlight of the month and what they want you to watch. And it's, a lot of it is like this, where they're, they're putting sexuality as entertainment. Uh, they're putting, do what feels good with your body. No matter what it is, you have the right to do it. And that's a good thing. And Peter says, they're surprised you don't join it. You don't want to celebrate, you know, this Pride Month with me? You, you don't, why don't you want to celebrate with me? And they'll, they'll mock you. They'll ridicule you for not wanting to join in it. So... Some specific examples of sins which are normalized in our culture. What are, what are sins that we normalize that we think, oh, everybody should do that? Well, I don't know if everybody should do it, but I mean, it's getting more and more common, uh, the LGBT thing. Uh, back in my youth, those were things that were hidden in closets. People hid away those kind of things, you know. And just in my lifetime, I've seen how it just progressed and progressed. Sure. The other day, I was, there was a commercial on TV. It was about some hearing loss commercial. And all these people were coming on the screen saying, <clears throat> Oh, I remember when I first heard that train whistle. Oh, that was great. Or I, when I first heard the jet go over. And then some guy says, Oh, I remember when I first heard my husband snore. It's how they just slide that in there. Right. Trying to normalize it. Yeah. Just like it's just a matter of, so what? It's like a train whistle. And even abortion. Yeah. They're trying to normalize that. Right. These, these were sins that took place in the past, but now they're promoted, they're supported, and if you're not on the bandwagon, suddenly you're the enemy. And as Peter says, they heap abuse on you. Um, they're not, you know seen you join in those things, so therefore you are the enemy. And that's, that's the way it was in Peter's time. That's the way it is today. That's the way it's always been. The, the unbelieving world tries to gain the majority, and then once it has the upper hand, it will try to snuff out any morality as the really the one that's on the fringe or the one that's off the base. And when I was a kid, I remember Channel 3 TV their station break would say you were watching KTVK Channel 3 and then they would quote, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, you don't dare do that anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, they'll also heap abuse not only if you don't join in their sins, but if you start speaking of something that you see in God's word. Um, look at number one there. I listed a abuse of God's gift of sex. We talked about that. That's normalized. Abuse of God's gift of alcohol. Um, 
it goes through cycles and swings, but still it's, it's fairly normalized uh, that you're the cool person if you're able to withstand it or can just get wasted. Uh, number three, abuse of God's gift of life. I think um, a big one that was hit on by Joan is abortion. Uh, very much normalized. It's, it's your, your right. It is access to health care, not murder. Can you, can you name maybe at least two more? And I'm talking about sinful living. So obviously, there's all types of sins. But what types of sins are lifestyles that people try to normalize? Living without God. Okay. It's better to go fishing Sunday morning. Than you could throw that church. into idolatry. Um, this idea that you can do sports on Sunday morning and schedule your events. Even Christian schools are buying into that now, where they just they don't set aside time for worship. That that used to be allowed, but it's normalized now. That why would you set aside time for worship? People don't do that. Oh, I can worship God in the woods. So yeah, the <laughs> that's both the third commandment and first commandment that's normalized. <laughs> that why why would we expect that? Uh, most people don't go to church regularly. Why should you? Okay, so you got that one. One more that we can list. I'm trying to come up with at least five. Peter had six. We talked about abuse of God's gift of marriage. Sure. So not just sexuality outside of marriage, but even within marriage. Open marriage. When uh, the writer of says it should be honored by all, do, do married people honor their marriage and do the unmarried honor marriage? Yeah. Using God's name in vain. Sure, um, that's another one. Pretty normalized to have not just vulgar language, but vulgar language which will take the second commandment and just throw it out the window. Yep. So this is a lot of law here, but Peter's reminding his readers this is the way they used to live. And he says, you used to live that way. Now you live for the will of God because Christ suffered. Remember, he just listed how Christ gave himself the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, made alive, raised again, seated at God's right hand. Now he says to you, guess what? You have a, you have a cross and you have a road to bear. You're going to follow Christ and the world's going to hate you because of it. Because you now... Don't join in those sins anymore. Or as he says here, living in. So that's kind of an important point. You know, just because a Christian falls into drunkenness doesn't mean they're not a Christian, but they certainly don't want to live in it. Uh, they will repent. They'll seek help. They'll seek counseling. Um, they'll admit that they've done wrong. But the unbeliever, they'll support it. They'll promote it. They will not repent of it. And they will try to make it their, their life. And Keep abuse on those who don't accept it. Very different mindset of faith and God's people. I'll look at verse 4 once again here. They are surprised you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So in all those categories we listed above, and all the topics that we just identified, for each one, can you identify which the, a way which the unbelieving world heaps abuse on those who don't join them? Does that happen? So we mentioned abortion. We mentioned not honoring marriage. We mentioned um, not honoring the second commandment, not honoring the third commandment. How does the world heap abuse on you if you don't do that? I saw it on social media when the, uh, they released the pre-Supreme Court decision and people just were railing on 
that, that how could anybody not support abortion? And they were just heaping insults on people who are pro-life. Sure. Yeah, the, as we mentioned, I think, a study or two ago, social media can be a, a really, what's the word? <laughs> really destructive, awful place, and an, an arena, I guess, for attack. So if you're on social media and you, you make any sort of a, a point, you're going to find abuse heaped on you. And that, that was seen, evidently, quite a bit with the, the Supreme Court leak that happened and how people immediately jumped to sides and heaped abuse. Oh, you see it even in our patient roundup with the letters to the editor. Oh, sure. If one guy does one decent editorial, boy, he gets a lot. For weeks to come, you're going to get rebuttal. Yeah. From those that share a different worldly opinion. If you're in a, an online platform, you'll get the whole world against you. If you're in a small town, you'll get the small town against you. Yeah, and that, that can be... Where everybody knows your name. Where everybody knows you, yeah. And they've identified you and labeled you and your reputation, not just your online presence is smeared, but your reputation is smeared. Our government seems to think all white people are white supremacists if they don't go along with all of this. Sure, yeah, the, the common, um, I think that's thrown around way too much is if you don't agree, you're either a hater, you're a racist, you're uh, someone who's a, a phobia something, just because you don't agree with something that's sinful. So yeah, the label will be thrown on you, whatever type of sin it is, when it's slander. I, I think, um, maybe Pat, I think your translation said that, right? Slander on you? Yeah, they heap abuse. That's that translation is capturing. This is verbal abuse. They're they're slandering you. They're they're trying to destroy you with their words, and you see that's the case. Uh, we live in a cancel culture, uh, where if somebody makes a statement regarding any one of those areas, whether it's abortion, or sexuality, or whatever have you, if you make a stand, you're you're canceled by this world. So they they slander you, and they'll they'll find any case they can against you. I read this morning there was a young woman in college who had a restraining order against her because three classmates objected to her talking openly about God and Christian living. And um, she was going to be expelled. But she's getting legal support to fight that. But NAU How awful. Right. The free speech doesn't apply to it doesn't apply to the person that disagrees with me and, and teaches yeah. the truth about God. And so. I'm offended. I'm hurt, offended by your words about God. <laughs> right, so free speech allows me to offend you, but you cannot offend me. Yeah. That's right. We're blessed to have free speech, but uh, don't expect it to stay long for someone who's a conservative Christian. Um, it's a undeserved privilege that anybody should have in this world that we can actually speak freely without consequence, but it's often abused and pretty soon Christians will be abused for using it. Okay, I, you know, I wish Peter had said something here to build us up and encourage us, but he does have that. He says, but they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He just goes right to the, right to the, the ultimate solution to this. He doesn't say, 
but Christian, bear up under this abuse because it won't take too long or bear up under this abuse. He says, but God's going to fix it. That, that's his answer. Peter, is, he's, he doesn't feel like beating around the bush with this, that, yeah, Christian, you're going to be different. You're going to follow the will of God. But guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a judge, and he's going to judge all people. <clears throat> and now I have to pause here because we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. I, I'm hoping you, you've seen that as we've gone along. Mm -hmm. So Peter kind of is concluding the creed at this point. So I, I want to do an exercise where we're going to do a creed exercise here. That's his solution as you, as you think about how the world hates you and you've, you've tried to follow the will of God and you're, you're slandered and abused. Just recite the Apostles' Creed. That's all you need for strength. Recite the Apostles' Creed. So let's, let's do that exercise. Um, starting it, um, review the previous verses. I want you to underline each part of the creed, the second article of the Apostles' Creed that we can find. We're going to start at 1 Peter 3.18 and come up to this point. So let's see what we can find in the Apostles' Creed. That's what Peter's been giving us to strengthen us, to cause us to bear up, to have the attitude of Christ, to arm ourselves with the same mindset, to survive the abuse. So starting at 3.18... Just about the section that we read today. Can you underline anything in verse 18 that's part of the Apostles' Creed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Suffered, died, buried. Right there. Okay, let's read on. Verse 19. Anything from the Apostles' Creed there in verse 19? Descended into hell. That's the Apostles' Creed. Okay, verse 20. <clears throat> When you get to the, the Nicene Creed, it talks about one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But Okay, so let's go to the next verse. 21. Yeah, 21 and 22. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> you, can, you can underline, on the third day he rose again from the dead. That's actually also in verse 18. Okay, how about verse uh, 22? Went to heaven as the right hand of God. Okay, so underline ascended into heaven. Underline is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And then finally, verse uh, 5 that we just read, right? Him who is, notice it says, who is ready to judge the living. Don't think God is far off and he's not going to come as judge. He's ready. Are you ready? Peter's implying. He will come to judge the living. Basically, every part of the second article of the Apostles' Creed, apart from um, the conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The rest of it is all there for the second article, just in these couple of verses. How, time-wise, how long was it between when he wrote his first letter and the second? They appear to be pretty close. Um, I did start doing some study on my... We're going to actually do a study on Second Peter next. I did start doing some study on it. It's not that distant from this letter. Because he does cover a lot of things in the second letter that would apply here. Right. Like, I can't remember like the... How soon is... I think the reason I'm not remembering is because we can't determine an exact time for both this letter and the second one, but we can get a time window. So we, we know, if you go back way back to our first introduction study, we know this is written later on. Uh, you can identify that. And just looking at internal and external evidence, 
probably the year 62 to 64, I think we placed them. So they were not that far apart. Yeah, that, that's true. You're going to see similar themes come up in the second letter. And I think that also speaks to the authenticity of Second Peter, which some people say, well, it wasn't recognized right away by all the churches. Well, first of all, all the churches didn't have it. That doesn't mean it's not legitimate. But the content is very much echoed. So, okay, so we got the Apostles' Creed here. How would you respond to this? We don't use the Apostles' Creed in my church because it isn't from the Bible. But it's not. It's not word for word from the Bible, is it? Or is it? I think pretty close. Pretty close. I think what we just saw was just about word for word, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Apostles' Creed is called such not because the Apostles wrote it and it's part of the canon of Scripture, but because it's based off the teaching of the Apostles. And actually, it's one of the earliest complete creeds that we have in the Christian Church already being used um, we can find evidence of it already being used for baptisms in the second century. Well, it's, it's like when little school kids say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. They're not reciting the Constitution. Okay. They're, but they're, just, they're just saying what they believe about sure. the, the country. One analogy. It's, it's a, a shortened confession to, to summarize what we believe. It doesn't mean just because you're not saying something word for word from the Bible, it's not true in that what the Bible teaches. I had someone tell me, well, we don't recite over and over again anything. And I said, why? Because it's meaningless after a while. I said, I have to protest. I've done it all my life, and it's not meaningless at all. That right. gives me hope every time I do it, and yeah. I can remember it. <laughs> Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. That, that's never going to lose its meaning. Silly. I think Silly. what a lot of people refer to is when the Bible talks about repetitious yes. sayings like like the, yeah. doing the rosary or Hail right. Marys and stuff like that. But right, like where you're actually counting you, the number of times you repeat yeah, a certain you prayer. Yeah, so many sins and, and the seriousness of one sin over another and blah, 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 blah. It's a, it's a work. Is it referring to the creed is not a work. Though. Like phylacteries. Nothing loses all its meaning? Obviously, you take that, and yeah, that's a good response is, well, it's not meaning... I you know, have to disagree. It's not meaningless to me, and I use it all the time. Um, you know, I've spoken with people that are able to recite the Apostles' Creed, and to them it's a treasure. And I've spoken to people that kind of despise it and thumb to nose it and say, well, that's just something people repeat. Well, not if they repeat it in faith. It, it is something that's real to them. It's living. Um, just like if you say to someone that you love, I love you, certainly you can do that just meaningless. But can't you also do it with meaning every time you say it mm -hmm. over and over and over and over? Tell them that you love them. Um, apply that to so much of the rest of Scripture. Oh, I, I don't, I don't um, ever use the Ten Commandments. I said that once before, and I don't want to repeat myself. But I don't want to say the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught because he only meant us to pray it once. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. It doesn't fly. Also, the function of the Apostles' Creed is, a, is what the Bible says, confess your faith. Mm -hmm. um, so how are you going to confess your faith? It is a way of giving witness. It is, I believe. So if you stop saying, I believe, and making clear what you believe, how can you confess your faith? If you have to invent a new way of doing it every time, it's not wrong to have different creeds, 
But how can someone ever charge a nice, succinct, biblical, word-for-word -word part of the scripture creed is, is not useful? Okay, can you explain why the creed is important for all Christians? And that is an entirely different discussion point, actually. Why is it important for all Christians? It's what you believe in. Yeah, this, this is important because you might, even the Christians that say, well, we don't, have, we don't have doctrine, we just have the Bible. Well, does the Bible say Jesus died and rose again? That's, that's doctrine. And that's, that's what the creed says. And also, these are points where if you take one of them away, you're taking away from Scripture. And finally, the, the creed was used by the Christian church to establish, are you actually a Christian or are you going off of something of your own teaching, not the Bible? So it's, like, it's a litmus test too. So if you can't say the creed, What's wrong that you can't say it? Is there a part of it you don't believe? Or you, you're uncomfortable confessing these, these core truths of Jesus and the, the Father and the, the Holy Spirit? Well, and then somebody who would criticize anybody for re, repeating the, the creed or the Lord's Prayer or anything, if you would ask them how many of them are members of the Lodge or Boy Scouts, or said the pledge, of, or patriotic, and do say the pledge of allegiance. Well, that would be a little hypocritical. Sure. You know. Just an excuse. Yeah, I know. Exactly. That's exactly. It's just an excuse to. You know, if I ignore God's word long enough, then it does. Then, then sin don't apply to me. It seems to be the attitude. Like I'm going to ignore God's church and everything because. Right, so often when people do dismiss the creed, it is done in such a way that they're trying to reinvent the Christian faith and church in a way that doesn't tie them to any previous authority or person or confession. And that's not always a good thing. <laughs> and another, and that's kind of my other point too, is not only is the Christian creed, this is ecumenical. It was confessed by all Christians at one point. Every believer confessed it. Doesn't matter what denomination you supposedly belonged to in the second century or what branch of Christianity, everybody confessed it. Nobody disagreed with it. Nobody contended it. Uh, so not only is it that, but it's an, a witness from the past. So the creed is something where you can say, we have the same faith as uh, those who were taught by the apostles, the Christians in the, the arena in Rome that were burned alive. We confess the same faith that they did. Uh, we confess the same truth as the, the martyrs who went before us, that the writers of the Hebrews talks about, who lost their homes and their lives. Um, we're, we're of the same. So it ties together the Christian church. The Bible does that, yes, but this is a very succinct way of a confession that they had that you can also join in saying, I believe this. Okay, um, other thoughts there? Next section, on the one hand, but on the other hand, well, maybe pick it up there next time because we're, we're going to have choir coming today and we have a, a whole page to cover, so probably a page turn would be a good place to pick it up. Let's close, though, at this point with a prayer regarding what we looked at. So I'm glad we didn't finish halfway through page 15, but we got through the rest of the page because Peter talks about... Um, the heaping abuse, the slander, the, the way your, your will of God is followed instead of the, the sinful evil desires, and how you have to arm yourself with the mindset of Christ. 
So that's why I wanted to, to finish with the creed, because Peter wraps up the creed there, and look at Christ as you do that. So let's pray regarding that. Lord, we live in a world that is constantly fighting against your goodness. In each of your commands that you've given in the, the summary of the law, in each of your directions for us as your people, you've directed us to be loving, kind, patient, gentle, merciful, and all the attitude of Christ is to be ours. And yet this world will so often slander, heap abuse against us, and think it strange and be surprised that we don't join with them. Give us strength, Lord, to follow Christ as we meditate on what he has done for us by his dying, his suffering and dying, his proclaiming his victory over the enemy, his rising to life and victory, his ascending into glory and ruling over all things with all authority at your right hand. And finally, as, as your son will come again to judge the living and the dead, help us to look forward to that day as we wait and we carry the cross today and look forward to the the coming crown. Amen. Bless us now as we open up to 1 Peter once again and we see the wonderful truths that you would have us take with us as we live as strangers in this world. Amen. All right, welcome everyone. We're starting our study now on 1 Peter. If you're following the handout, we're on page 16. You can find that on our website, rockofages-payson.com. And I don't know if someone's listening to this recording and finding it somehow off of some other podcast reader, but I'm Tom Barthel, the pastor at Rock of Ages. Uh, We're a Lutheran church in Payson, Arizona. Okay, page 16, we're on 1 Peter 4, and I think we left off last time at verse 6. We said our opening prayer, so we're going to jump into our study here. Here we have our... Our group sitting at four different tables, for those of you that are listening. All right, I I titled this section, Serve While Suffering, uh, this whole part of chapter four, the the start, because Peter kind of brings that theme up. And then this part of the, the section as we jump in on top of page 16, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we, we saw earlier this spirit flesh contrast to how Christ was put to, de- put to death in the body, but made alive in spirit. And some people capitalize that and they make it like the Holy Spirit made him alive. And while that's, I guess, true, uh, the, the contrast that's actually been made is his lowly state and his glorified state. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at now, how that also applies to us. We have a lowly state and we're going to have a glorified state. Um, similar way, Peter talks about how we we have an, been born again of an imperishable seed. Paul calls that, that new body that we're going to receive forever a, a spiritual body. It's a real body, we know that, but it's glorified. It's not like this earthly body. So just to read again um, verse 6 here, First Peter 4, 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now maybe for Peter's original readers this was more clear, but the way that we use language and the way that we understand this, this is maybe one of those verses that fits what Peter says in his second letter, that Paul writes some things that are are hard to understand. 
His, his letter is clear, but this verse, uh, we can maybe say we could rightly struggle with, there are a couple ways of understanding it. So it doesn't mean Peter's not clear throughout his letter, but this particular verse, what exactly is Peter saying? We've got to break that down a bit. First of all, I want you to contrast how most people regarded Jesus when he walked this earth before his death with how he's regarded now by all the saints and angels. How would you contrast that? Back when he walked the earth, people didn't believe, a lot of people didn't believe that he was anything special. Yeah. Just a man. The reason they're so astonished when he did a miracle is because he just looked like an ordinary man. Uh, So they regarded him as, what's that? And they were getting something. Right, yep, like so they, they regarded as some, someone they could maybe get something from and make him their king and be a breadwinner. So they, they were so focused on earthly stuff. When they saw him, unless they had, you know, like the shepherds, the message from the angels or the wise men, they, they knew the prophecies and, or they saw the miracles and heard the teaching, quite often they just regarded him as that man from Nazareth, even to the point of his death, being ridiculed and despised as an ordinary man who claimed to be God. Versus now, how's he regarded by those who see him? Yeah, he is adorned by the, the saints in heaven and adored and praised and worshipped. Uh, the saints on earth bow down and worship him. The angels praise him as the living God who's glorified. So Peter spoke of that when he was writing just a few verses earlier. Christ in regard to the body, in regard to the spirit. Well, the same words come up here for us in regard to the body, in regard to the spirit. So depending on how your translation puts it, uh, I want you to see what Peter is actually doing here is he's contrasting the way that the world looks at you now versus the way that you are looked at by God and will be looked at by God forever. So believers will suffer and die. They carry a cross and enter the grave. However, God gets to make the final judgment. He declares all who trust in Christ, the cornerstone, as alive and part of his holy living temple. Uh, Recall early in the chapter how we are being built into his temple, or Paul says in Ephesians 2, we've been made alive in Christ, and we've already been seated with him in glory. So according to 1 Peter 4, 6, he says, this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And I misspoke if you listened earlier, uh, jumping ahead. Uh, those who are now dead, look at verse 5. He's, he just talked about the living and the dead who will rise on the last day, right? So if someone has died and they had the gospel preached to them, he's talking about believers who, who have died. So that the dead believers might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. So when a believer dies, how does the world view it? What are the human standards when, when you die as a believer? What does the world see? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. They'll see the, the gravestone. They'll, they'll know that you've turned back to dust. The world judges us as believers to be no better off than the rest of them. But, so this is where the other hand comes in. So on the one hand, the world says, eh, believers have no advantage. They're, they're lowly and they go back to the grave. That's the human side of it. 
But what does God see? But live according to God. This is what God says, what God sees in regard to the Spirit. Yeah. So if you take in regard to the body, in regard to the Spirit, and kind of paraphrase um, this idiom or this way that Peter's speaking and, and change it to their lowly state and their exalted state, this verse starts to make more sense, and it's a good way to interpret it. So you could read it then. They might be judged according to human standards in their lowly state, but live according to God in their exalted state. See, that, that begins to make a little bit more sense in what Peter's trying to tell us. Believers have died, but judgment day is coming, and God's going to judge them to be glorified. Uh, as, or as Paul says, those he has called, he's justified. Those he's justified, he will also glorify. So if believers were judged according to their lowly life on earth, what would the world think of them? Nothing, right? So regard to men, they're nothing. On the other hand, and that's the construction in the Greek here, it says on the one hand, but on the other hand, if believers were to be seen the way God sees them now and forever, what would we see? So what does God see when he sees you? Yeah, he already sees you as good as glorified and his own child, a living stone, precious, as he says in chapter 2, in his sight, uh, a royal priesthood in the house of God. The world might see you as a stranger, <coughs> as a foreigner who doesn't belong here, and they'll, they'll heap abuse on you, but God sees you as his own born-again child with a whole new status, a whole new position, and he'll see you forever in glory. So I, I put a little note on the previous page. If you flip over, there's a note there where it's the flesh-spirit antithesis. I mentioned that before um, when we looked at chapter 3, verse 18. Something just to add here to what we saw when I looked at it previously in our notes is compare it with 1 Corinthians 15. Believers now have a natural body, but when it's raised they will have, Paul says, a spiritual body that will be like Jesus' glorious body. So it's a real body, but glorious. So that, that's what Paul's, or Peter is really contrasting. The lowliness and the glory, which fits with our study theme. There are other ways that this is interpreted in verse 6. Some will, well, we can list like five or six different ways, but I just wanted to give you, to keep it clear, one way to interpret it that does fit Peter's context. So, any questions, comments on verse 6? All right. So, verse 7 to 11. Does anybody want to read that for us? Through 11? Yeah. <clears throat> the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received, received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. So can you explain how knowing the end of all things is near will influence how we use our time? 
precious time. Yeah, so time is limited. Uh, whether it's time for the church to reach the lost or time for us before God comes again. So what does Peter mean by the end of all things? Literally. Quite literally, yeah. I mean, He's going to say in a, his next letter, the earth and everything in it will be destroyed and burned by fire. And this world, as we know it, will end. So. Including our two-year supply of stuff. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, have, right. They, they store up for the end, the apocalypse. Whether it's a Christian thinking they have to store up for the Great Tribulation, which, by the way, we're in right now, or it's a Latter-day Saint thinking they have to save up for their mandatory, what, seven-year supply or something, um, or whether you're just a prepper trying to save, it's not going to save you on Judgment Day. The end of all things is near, including your two-year supply, your seven-year supply, or whatever. Uh, when God comes again, everything's over. That really puts it in perspective. Well, that also includes... Lately, there's been a lot of talking about life out there. They're gone, too. Sure. If, if God did, in his wisdom, choose to have intelligent life or unintelligent life somewhere else in the universe, the Bible makes clear everything, everything, including the, the planets and the stars, will be destroyed. So when, when he comes to judge this world, everything that was made around it will be destroyed. Kind of a, related to that topic, isn't it interesting how the, the stars are for us to govern the times? Did God design them for another intelligent life form? Well, that's another study. So since the end of all things is near, and remember Peter's going to say, um, near is relative, for God, you know, a thousand years is for us like a day. But for God, it's time is different. But it's near. And we should be ready for it to come at any time. Let's look at each command that he gives because of that. So since the end of all things is near, he says, therefore, and gives us one, two, three, four different commands. Let's discuss each one of those commands from verses 7 to 11. And he also attaches to each command a significance. So, first of all, he has, be alert. Therefore, be alert and sober of sober mind. Uh, he actually used that term earlier <clears throat> at the end of chapter 1, I think it was. Or... Or maybe not. So, be of sober mind, be alert. What does he mean by that? Well, mine has a couple of words. It says, be sober-minded for prayer. Okay. Yes. So what's one of the things he attaches to it? Why should we be sober-minded? So we can so we can pray. I just remembered what I was thinking of earlier. Remember how he said, gird up the loins of your mind? That's what it was. You guys remember that uh, picture that he gave us? So that's chapter 1, verse 13. With minds that are alert and fully sober, which is actually, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I don't think he says gird the loins of your mind here, but it's the same idea. Spiritually be alert. So what is one way that we be spiritually, that we become spiritually alert? Sure. Or actually he says that's a result, right? So that you can pray. So we want to, he attaches like this uh, idea that prayer is, 
connected to our spiritual soberness, our um, be mindful. You're not going to pray for, like we did earlier today, people who are needing prayer if you're not concerned about spiritual matters. You're not going to pray for the things that really do matter unless your mind is set on those things. How do, how do we become spiritually alert? Be in the Word. Yeah, so it's be in the Word. He, he actually told us how we keep our minds healthy and spiritually alert. As he said, craves pure spiritual milk. So he's told us that. And to grow up in your salvation rather than, I don't know, craving spiritual intoxication. All the, the stuff the devil would have distract us or keep our minds off of what is true. So yeah, be in the Word. Okay, any other thoughts regarding that command? So we should be alert. And why? Because he wants us to pray. Be, be aware of, there's a spiritual battle going on and we need to be in prayer for ourselves and for the church. Or as Jesus says to his disciples when temptation is coming by and they're literally getting drowsy, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Okay, what about the next command? Above all, love each other deeply. Mine says love covers a multitude of sins. So he attaches something to his love command. So we should be a sober and spiritually alert so we can pray. We should love. Why? Because it covers over sin. Does love actually do that? Well, if you're loving somebody, you're probably not so apt to be sinning. Okay. Certainly, if you're loving, it prevents a lot of sin. That's for sure. You're not holding grudges. Love doesn't hold a grudge. Love always forgives. So, yeah. Love does cover over sin. In fact, isn't it the love of Christ, first of all, that covers our sin? And isn't it our love, our forgiveness, our compassion for others that allows us to cover over sin? Notice he says, love each other deeply. Not just, well, I'm going to give you some of my love, but enough love to cover whatever sin that person brings your way. Love covers not just some sin, it covers a multitude of sins. Kind of a neat attachment to the command to love. You know, when you go out with a spiritual alertness, you're thinking, it's because I want to pray. When you go out loving one another, your goal is, I want to cover the sins that would swamp me and swamp others with guilt and would uh, continue to grow and fester, but I'm, I'm going to cover them. And the word says, does not say love one another as I have loved you. Right, so this love that covers sin it's all rooted in the gospel, the love of Christ. Next command, offer hospitality to one another. So, <laughs> so that means, yeah, and then he attaches what to that? An attitude without complaining. Because someone stops by, oh, do, you, do they have to come over now? This is... <laughs> Too early. I haven't had my coffee. <laughs> or I've got my family visiting. I don't have time for more people right now. Um, we start to feel our limit, our stress, and we grumble. And suddenly, is it even hospitality? It's a duty. Yeah, it's a duty, and the person that's 
being served by you feels awful because they feel like they're imposing on you and they're, they're a burden instead of being gracious. Kind of interesting that that comes up. You know, okay, spiritual alertness, love, just key themes in Scripture, and then hospitality. It seems kind of lesser, and you'd think it would fit under, under love, but here he's emphasizing it. The end of all times is near. Notice he says, offer hospitality to one another. He's talking to fellow believers. Um, you can't always offer hospitality to every panhandler or every person that comes your way because they could very easily take advantage of you, abuse you, or even cause danger for you in your life. But can't you offer hospitality with the person that you know in Christ, your, your fellow believer that might need hospitality? So the person that you can trust and you know is only genuinely in need or just needs some hospitality, certainly with them. You know, I've, I've read in other books where when it deals with something such as that hospitality or to love one another, a lot of times it's, it ends with especially the believers. It does, yeah. Uh, especially with the family of God. It has to start there, and that's where it can happen. For the rest of it, it's as far as it's possible, because you, you can't necessarily do that with the unbelieving world. Uh, that's going to heap abuse on you and try to take advantage. Actually, wasn't it during last week at choir? Uh, during choir practice, someone interrupted our, our choir and they said, Oh, so sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but can you give me some gas money? And, oh, I, yeah. and I had to explain, we, oh, we don't have a fund for that. And she said, Well, Jesus says you're, you're a charitable place and you're supposed to be charitable and you're supposed to give me something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, throwing the guilt on. And I said, well, do you have a church home? Because I don't really know who you are. I don't know if you're going to go use it. She said, okay, fine. Fine, fine, just give me a Walmart card. I said, how do I know you're not going to use that for alcohol? And <laughs> Not that I'm judging her, but I don't know her. So be shrewd, uh, be wise with what you do and what you have. If she truly was in need, she wouldn't have gotten so angry at me so quickly, I think, mm-hmm. and started charging me with guilt. Anyways, so without grumbling, I, I didn't grumble, she grumbled. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, as far as, like, if she was destitute, I was perfectly happy to give her some food or some water or let her use the facilities here. But just handing out cash, uh, that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about give people what they need, especially believers. And do it freely with a good attitude. All right, so we got hospitality. What, what next do we have? Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others. So now we have, similar to love and hospitality and spiritual alertness, is what gift has God given you to serve the body? Because he says, whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter doesn't go on to list all the gifts that God gives us. This could include both Um, possessions that we're stewards of, but also spiritual gifts. Whatever gift God has given in his grace. So whatever we have, whether it's wealth, a talent, an ability, um, God's given it to us in grace, not because we by right have it and that we should use it for ourselves. He's given it so that we can use it to serve people around us. And then what's the goal? To serve others, not so they can say, oh, 
Bill so generous with his time, so generous with his his woodworking abilities to to make things and help people. No, it's so that God can be praised. You know, maybe put, literally put a cross on it, but ultimately people want to see why am I doing this? Not because I expect something back, but because God is so good and He's so generous and He's so loving and He's given us hospitality and He's given us all that we need and answers our prayers. All right, for each of these commands, can you share some comforting truths that are found with them? So these are commands, which we generally, will, we're going to label these as law. So do this, believer. Something that we should do. Is there something comforting attached with them? Well, the first word of that statement. Share it. Whatever you have, share Okay. Certainly comfort if you're the receive, recipient of sharing. If you have love, share it. Pass it on. Hospitality, whatever. Mm-hmm. That you have something to share. That's definitely comforting. But God did all these things before he commanded us or asked us to do that. Yeah, definitely a comforting truth. With which each of these laws that you could attach is God did all these things for us. He was spiritually alert and he prayed. Uh, remember his example in this when he prayed in our on our behalf and when he stepped in our place. Even you know that night when he was praying in great anguish, he loved deeply to cover a multitude of sins. Who could ever claim to have done that more than the one who covered the sins of the world with the greatest love ever given this world? He offered hospitality without grumbling. So Jesus didn't have a house, but he certainly welcomed people uh, when they came seeking need from him. He never turned them away. Um, he also, you know, fed them. He was concerned about their their physical needs when he saw the crowds that didn't have food, and he fed the five thousand, fed the four thousand, even fed his disciples breakfast when they came back from a fishless night of fishing. Those all the miracles he did for those that were ill. Right. And he was concerned about their those who were sick and who were ill and who were lame. His first miracle was hospitality at a wedding, right? And he wasn't even he wasn't even the the host of the wedding. So yeah, he offered hospitality and invites us into a, a heavenly dwelling. Um, use whatever gifts you've received to serve others. When Jesus did miracles, notice he didn't do them for himself. He always did them for the benefit of others. If it was for himself, it was only to accomplish his mission, not for his own gain, personal gain. If anyone speaks, they should do it. Speaking the very words of God is the next verse. That's what Jesus certainly did. Verse 11, speaking the truth, everything he spoke. Okay, I, I think we can also find with each individual one more comfort. So one, there's the comfort, good to bring that up, Pat, Jesus' active obedience. Uh, that is comforting when you look at these commands. So we have this from God. God doesn't ask, but he hasn't already given us. How about just look at verse 8? Um, no, uh, sorry, verse 7. Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Do you find anything comforting there? So we know that our prayers are heard. Yeah, we may pray. God invites us, wants us to pray. He hears our prayers. That's a gift of grace right there, that we have access to God uh, not because we're sober-minded, but we want to be sober-minded so we can use that access, uh, so we can 
pour out our hearts to our God who listens. That's grace that we can pray. <clears throat> what about eight? Certainly, love covers a multitude of sins. When Jesus says, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. That's grace, right? That's gospel. Not only are those sins covered by us, but covered by God as we share his love. Um, verse nine is a little bit harder to find any gospel comfort, but we mentioned Christ did that. How about verse 10? Do you find any gospel truth in verse 10? Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Everybody has a gift. Yeah. So it's law that you're supposed to use the gift, but isn't that a gospel grace that we received something from God? The fact that he's graciously poured out on us our gifts, uh, that we can be stewards of God's gifts and his grace. So there's gospel behind it. Going back to hospitality. Sure. Jesus offered hospitality when he said, he told us that he was going to go prepare a place for us. Right. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we'll be welcomed to our, as Peter calls it, our inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. So all of these commands <clears throat> have both uh, the comfort of God keeping them for us and giving them to us, but each one of them has a hint of, <clears throat> excuse me, of gospel behind it. So even, even stewardship of using God's gifts. Well, where did we get our gifts? All right, and then we didn't focus on verse 11 too much. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very, very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. So if you have something to say, think, would God have me say this? You know, is this... Is this something that I'm saying in my selfish striving, or is this something God wants me to say today to build someone up, to encourage, to support, to teach? And if I serve, once again, God provides the strength. That's, that's comforting. You know, if, if I'm going to carry out some role in serving another person, God give me strength for that, and he's going to provide the strength that's needed. So that was my, my final point. Pat brought us to it earlier, but explain how Christ fulfilled all these commands as both our example and substitute. We already discussed that point, so good to keep that in mind when you see commands like this listed. I had a, a side note here on spiritual gifts. It says, uh, whatever gift you have received. So, yes, the, the gifts can include... Um, the regular types of stewardship gifts are time, our talents, our treasures, and our temple. But also gifts that we've received to serve the church. Uh, Paul talks about those in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Um, some of them are listed. There's no categorical listing of spiritual gifts, but I want us to look at those today. So Peter says, whatever gift you've received, use it to serve others. To praise God. So let's look very briefly here at what are some of the spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture in the various places where they're listed. One place you can find them is Romans 12, 6 to 8. So let's turn there. Anybody have that that wants to read it for our group? Just verses 6 to 8 will list for us some of those gifts. I can read it. Okay. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. 
If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. So those are spiritual gifts. Do you, do you often think of those types of things? Um, you had exhorting, some translations will say encouraging. Uh, all those things are spiritual gifts. So not just your, your human personality, but gifts from God to serve. Any of those stand out to you as gifts that you often don't think of as a spiritual gift? Certainly you'd say, oh, prophecy and, and teaching, those are spiritual gifts. But what about the other ones? Do you see uh, giving generously as a spiritual gift? Yeah, God's worked that, and he, he actually calls it here a spiritual gift. So we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, and one of them is giving generously. How about uh, extorting or encouraging? Do you see that as a spiritual gift? And that you're maybe a person that encourages other people. That's part of the body of believers, that the gift is given for those, um, like Barnabas, he was called the son of encouragement. Barnabas is seen throughout the book of Acts as someone who offers encouragement just when it's needed to the person that needs it the most. So I think our Mary Martha group has this uh, card-giving ministry, right? So that's part of that encouraging, someone that wants to do that, that wants to send cards to people that are either sick or just even encourage them to remember them. And it's amazing when you send a card sometimes. People will tell you how much it meant to them or it came at just a time when they really needed it. It seemed like it was yeah. just a real blessing. And that's not, you know, the gift of the post office and a you know a stamp. That's that's the gift of the spirit to 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 encourage and that's one way that it's expressed. How about uh, showing mercy? So maybe there are people that expect certain standards and someone is just beaten down and they're, they're feeling uh, they can't keep up with things and they're, they're feeling guilt. How would the gift of mercy help them? Oh, I know you didn't meet your expectation. I know you, you kind of failed this week, but I'll, I'll let that slide and I'll help cover it. Right? Well, in everything, it's, you're doing it not just... Because you want to look like a good guy, you can do it to praise God, right? And show His glory. Yeah, when you look at these, and this is Paul's listing, he actually also attaches something to each one of these commands too. So, in accordance with your faith, prophesy. And he says, if it's giving, then give generously. If lead, do it diligently. If showing mercy, do it cheerfully. So, what's the goal in exercising these gifts? It's to serve God with the right attitude for the benefit of others and for the praise of God. Well, we live under the Lord's grace and mercy, so sharing that with others. Yeah, all of us, I think, to some extent, should, should display each one of these gifts. Maybe you're not the teacher who's called to teach in front of a crowd, but maybe you teach a grandchild, and maybe you're not giving generously in that you're you know, supporting some major ministry effort, but you're giving generously from what God has given you. And leading as an example for your family members or something. Or, yeah, all of us should be able to show mercy when someone needs it and do that in a cheerful way. But some of us, these are gifts, areas that we excel in. 
How about, uh, let's look at the other listing. 1 Corinthians 12 has another listing for us. So once again, these are gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 8. Something we, we would say that believers have been given by God to serve his church. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 11. So Paul says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but all of them and in everything, it is the same God at work. So he's giving us the background. When we have a gift, a spiritual gift, it's from God, and he's going to give it just as it's needed. Verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So what does verse 7 tell us about spiritual gifts? Okay, it's for the common good. That would be, you know, whoever working like a police officer, if you try to help people, or to try to drive them down, to help people, that's giving himself, that's mercy. Right, so you're putting it into... The perspective of society, you see functions like that, almost like even an ant colony or beehive. God structures it so that it all serves a common purpose. Well, his church is like that. His church is structured. So every one of us is like an ant or a bee in the colony, and we all have a, a role to fulfill for the common good. But also, if you look at what he says there, each one. So nobody can say, well, I can't serve the common good of the, the body of believers. You serve in your own way, which you are able to serve. Yeah, each one has some way to serve, and that's going to be unique. Uh, it's not that we're all, you know, the, the drone bees that serve the role of protecting the hive. We all, we all have different roles. Okay, so going on, verse 8. We're in a, once again in 1 Corinthians 12. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. And to another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, interpretations of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Now Paul's emphasis here He's going to mention the spiritual gifts that were evident in the Corinthian church. And he's going to kind of bring out the highlight. Oh, by the way, nobody's better or more superior than another because of their gift. They all have been given by the same Holy Spirit. So that's his emphasis here as he makes that listing. But just as the listing that Paul gave in Romans 12, it's not a categorical list. But he's using these particular gifts to apply his, his sermon or his message here in his letter. We can also jump to verse uh, 28 of this chapter. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. So he lists some more ways that those gifts are seen as people serve as leaders in the church and servants in the church. Pastor, I think it's interesting that he puts you know, the miracle workers and the healing, and he doesn't put those first. Right. It's like that. that's not what, what the church is all about. They don't make them more important just because they can heal you or whatever. 
what comes first is actually the word, right? So, and that's what we would say. That that's what defines a divine call. Is if someone's working with serving with God's word, we would say that's a call to, you know, serve in the church if they're serving with the gospel. And in various ways, it can include other categories and gifts. Yeah, that's that's a good point because in the Corinthian church, those were the impressive gifts, so to speak, not the the teachers and the prophets and the apostles. You know, when you were talking about that lady that came to the door, it reminded me of when Peter, I think Peter and John, when they were coming into the city, and they passed by a gate, and there was a blind or a crippled man, yeah, beg or a beggar, and he said, "Silver or gold, I don't have, but what I do have for you is free." Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking maybe that's what you should have offered her. This is free. <laughs> Right, we do want to try to emphasize that. That yeah. sorry, we're not we're not able to help you in that way because we don't know you, but we'd love to get to know you and help you that way. But we have something even greater to offer you, and it's the message of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. And if they have that, great, build them up in it, because uh, that's the the precious gift, the precious message of the blood of Christ that far outweighs any other inheritance or gifts you can provide. All right, so just to summarize, when we look at spiritual gifts. Who receives a spiritual gift? Every believer, yeah. So anyone who's in Christ <coughs> has a gift. Uh, what are the gifts for? To share with others. Yeah, to serve others and to share with others, not just for your personal gain. Uh, so for the, the common good, the, the good of the building up the body of believers, and ultimately with, with that to praise God. Uh, why should we never look down at any gift? Yeah, it's the same Spirit who distributes those gifts just as he's determined. And when Paul, as we just left off, says, eagerly desire the greater gift, he talks about love as you know, the greatest. That is what each gift is for. <coughs> so if you have a gift but don't use it in love, you're missing the point. So Peter tells us, he says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received. <coughs> We just kind of looked at the rest of Scripture to see what's meant by you have received. <coughs> Peter's not talking about, oh, I worked hard, or I, I received it from my employer, or I developed a skill. Maybe that's true to some extent that you, you know, developed a skill, for example, to play a musical instrument <coughs> or to speak another language, but you'd still call it a spiritual gift if it's used that God gave you that ability to serve his church. And maybe... You received an inheritance or worked hard for money, but you received it, and you received a generous heart from God so you can give generously and cheerfully. All right, so that's why I titled this section, Serve While Suffering. Uh, Paul talks about <coughs> not joining with those who heap abuse on you as we wait for Christ to come in glory and to judge this world. He says, the end of all things is near, and as you're suffering in these end times, believer, be alert, love, offer hospitality, and use whatever gift you have to serve, to speak the word of God, to use the strength God has provided you in these end times. And another thing, too, is to remember that we're not all going to be around at those end times. You can go anywhere. Right. So, so, the, so the end of all things end, is near. Yeah, you don't have to wait for the end of the world. This could happen any day. 
the end of all things is near and your your own personal time is near. Yeah. I wanted to close this section with a prayer exercise. So look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised. And then it closes with that doxology. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Praise through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I I thought we could formulate this into a, a prayer for ourselves and for our church body, looking at all these commands. First of all, just meditate on that for yourself as you read these commands. But then, if I'm going to close us with a prayer today, what could I include in that prayer for us and for our church body, according to what Peter gives us here? Sure. So, Lord, help our church to be faithful stewards as they recognize the grace, the gift they've received to be a steward in your kingdom. So help each one of us to to use those gifts by recognizing those gifts as from God and for God. I'll include that in our prayer. Sure. Lord, help each one of us to show hospitality to people in our lives, to be able to not just show some love, but love deeply as we encounter people in our lives, to offer forgiveness. Maybe, Lord, help us to be more like you in doing the things that you say we should do. Yeah, Lord, you you tell us to to be alert and to pray. And just as your son did that, even in the darkest hour, help us to be alert and to pray, just as he did. To love deeply as he did. Yeah, to be more like Christ in all these things. Glad you you keep bringing us full circle to see Christ, and that's what Peter's telling us. Help us, Lord, when we speak, not to just speak our our favorite political mantra or our favorite personal vendettas or agendas, but help us to speak the very words of God when we, when we talk to people around us, that they hear your words through our mouths. And help our congregation when we serve not to do it you know, with grumbling or with weakness, but with the strength that you provide, uh, that knowing that we can rely on you for that strength and serve your name. And thank the Lord for the blessings we do have. Sure. Yeah, not included in in Peter's section here, but let's close it then with with thanksgiving, right? Let's let's say our prayer then, so that we have those thoughts. Let's put them together and approach the throne of our Lord as we close today's study. Lord, we saw in today's message that Peter tells us and reminds us, the end of all things is near. With that truth in mind, Lord, help us as your people here in in this Bible study and as a church body to be alert and sober-minded, 
that we are spiritually awake and ready to pray in all circumstances. Just as your son prayed that your will be done, even as he faced his greatest trials, help us to face every challenge in life, turning to you in prayer, praying for others around us, praying for the spread of your gospel. And Lord, we ask that you help us to love each other deeply and to cover over each other's sin, just as you covered our sin with your wonderful sacrifice and your abundant forgiveness. Let our love run deep so that when we feel offended, upset, angry, or wronged, that we offer grace and love and cover over every sin. And Lord, when someone comes to us seeking need or seeking support, help us to offer hospitality. And to do this, Lord, without without any sort of complaint or grumble, but in cheerful, loving kindness because of your great love and hospitality toward us. Lord, we know you've given us many gifts. We received those gifts from you, not for our own personal gain, but as a body of believers, we are able to now serve one another as those who are managers of your your gifts, your undeserved gifts, in all the various forms that we have them. Uh, the people in our congregation have many of those gifts listed that we read earlier this this morning. We also have many other things that we must consider gifts from you to serve each other. Help us to use them to recognize those gifts and to serve others. And Lord, when we speak as members of Rock of Ages and as people that are now your chosen precious cornerstones built into your or stones built on the cornerstone part of your kingdom help us to speak as a royal priesthood that the the words that we speak are the very words from God uh, that we build others up that we spread your gospel that we encourage that we show compassion and kindness and mercy and truth and Lord, as, as we serve, give us strength. We know that all the strength for service that we have is provided by you so that in all that we do as your people, that you may be praised through Christ, our Savior, and that we might proclaim all glory and power to you forever. We thank you for these words that you've given us today to meditate on. We thank you for answering this prayer and for giving us all of our gifts through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.